And so today we're going to be diving into the book of Nehemiah. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and get to Nehemiah because we're going to really be walking through that book, a good portion of that book today. These are lessons from the life of Nehemiah. And specifically, this is in regards to a spirit of intimidation. Now, you might say, well, that doesn't apply to me. You would be surprised at what areas you struggle with intimidation and not even realize that that is what is happening. And so in Deuteronomy 31, uh, this is where Moses is ending his time on earth and passing the baton on to Joshua. Remember, Moses was not allowed to go into the promised land, and so Joshua took that up and was going to lead Israel into the promised land. And so this was the word that he gave to Joshua, be strong, of good courage, do not fear nor be afraid of them, the enemy, for the Lord your God, he is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. So these are some of the last words he's giving to Joshua before sending him into the promised land. And so today, I want us to take a look at this thing called intimidation, because this is a major tactic of the enemy, and we see it all throughout the book of Nehemiah. In this verse in Deuteronomy, do not, be, do not fear or be afraid. If, that, if you look, I love how that NIV says, do not be timid. And so this word afraid, do you know what one of the, the definitions of is to overawe, specifically to get somebody to do what you want them to do. And so I think this really, sometimes the work, the enemy seems like he's so magnified in our lives, right? It seems so big, he's overawing you. To where now, what can you do in the face of that kind of a Goliath, right? That's where Israel, before David came along and, and slew Goliath, that's what all the Israelite army was doing. They saw this big giant, and they're all hiding, not able to fight. Well, David comes along, and he's not overawed by that giant because he knows the living God. And he's like, well, looking around, what are you all doing? Who are you, Goliath? I serve the living God. I know my God. And he, this kid, with the rock, slays the giant. What was the giant doing? He was intimidating the army of Israel, and they were hiding and trembling. And so this word afraid is really to awe you. Satan wants to awe you. And he wants it to do it in order to get him to do whatever he wants you to do. And so let's go over to Nehemiah and take a look at how Nehemiah handles this. Okay? We are going to be in quite a few passages. I had to break out the glasses today. We're going to begin in Nehemiah 1. And so if you're not familiar with this passage, this story, this account, this is where the people of God have been in captivity, and the temple and the city walls have all been made desolate. And now it is time for them to begin to come back to Jerusalem. 
And so you read through Ezra, and the book of Ezra is really the rebuilding of the temple. When we come to the book of Nehemiah, we have Nehemiah who is asking for a report of he's still serving the king as a cupbearer. He's, so he's not in Jerusalem yet. So he's asking for a report. How is it going in Jerusalem? How is the rebuilding going? And he gets a report back in verse 3 of chapter 1. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and its gates are burned with fire. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and I wept and I mourned for many days. The state of the walls of Jerusalem, its protection, its peace, have been broken down, and he's in great sorrow over it. And so if you go over to chapter 2, he's serving the king, like he always does, and in the presence of the king, the king notices that there's something different about Nehemiah. He notices a sadness that is upon him. And so in verse 5, or verse 4, the king is asking him about, no, why are you so sad, Nehemiah? What, what is it that I can do for you? And in verse 5, he says to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. And so it pleased the king to send him. Not only that, but he sent him with letters to all of the governors of the land. He sent letters to, so he could make his way through the forest unharmed. And not only that, that they would have to provide the wood that he needed to rebuild the temple. So he had great favor from the king, right? And so at the end of chapter 2, he's, he's going through, he's passing out the letters, and in verse 10, we have his first encounter with the enemy, when Sanballat and Hor the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard of it, they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. And so this is going to be the first encounter here that he has with the enemy. We're going to come back to that verse because that's the starting point. But I want to continue on down in verse 13 to kind of get a picture of the activity of Nehemiah. So in verse 13, he arrives in Jerusalem, and he was there for three days, when in verse 13, he goes out by night through the valley gate, to the serpent well and the refuse gate, and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and its gates burned with fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal under me to pass. It was so broken down. So I went up in the night by the valley and viewed the wall. 
Then I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the others who did the work. Then I said to them, you see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste and its gates burned with fire. Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. And so after conveying the favor on this work, they said, let us rise up and build. Then they set their hands to this good work. Isn't that good? They set their hands to this good work of rebuilding the temple. And so Nehemiah has this assignment that he has felt that the Lord has impressed upon him to rally everybody together and take away the reproach of Jerusalem and rebuild these walls. This sounds like a good work, doesn't it? A good thing to give your hand to. And they're all excited coming into it. This is often how it is with the new work that you feel the Lord giving to you. Great excitement. Yes, let's do it. I remember the moment in the elder meeting when we decided, yes, let's plant a church in Petersburg. Yes, we sense the, wor- the, the, we sense the favor of the Lord on this, the Spirit of God in this. We're going to do this. And there's great excitement. There's always out of the gate that great excitement. It's still exciting. But then you come into the the work of it and the battle of it, right? And that's what we're going to get into. But for now, we have Nehemiah's assignment, and everybody is excited to begin this work that God has given to them to do. It's always the good starting point. It's like the little honeymoon phase, right? And then comes the hard work. Then comes the hard work of building a life marriage, right? And so now we're going to begin to gauge in the work of it and the battle of it. And from the very beginning, before he even announces it to the people, the enemy is already at work against them. If we go back to verse 10, this is, this is the enemy already hearing. They're the governors And so they are already getting the king's letters about this work. So they know about it before the people even know about it. And so before Nehemiah even rallies everyone together, already the enemy is disgruntled toward him. And over the fact that, what did it say in verse 10? They were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. From the very beginning, the enemy has not wanted the well-being of the children of Israel. They have always, always, Israel has been a target of the enemy because they're God's special people. And the enemy will go after whatever is special to God. And your life is special to God. With the new covenant, you are now part of God's special people. And so you have an enemy that does not want to see you and your well-being, because you are God's special people. Everybody say, I am God's special people. 
That's right. And the enemy is deeply disturbed about that. And so begins not just the work that God has put in their heart to do, but it begins the battle with the enemy that does not want to see that work. And so if we continue reading in chapter 2, verse 19, right after they set their hands to do this good work, the enemy comes into play. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they laughed at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Will you rebel against your king? So I answered them and said to them, The God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we his servants will arise and build. But you have no heritage. Now, this is an interesting point because the verse I read at the beginning of Joshua going into the promised land, some of the very people that he drove out of the promised land, which is where Jerusalem was, were the Ammonites and the Horonites. And so he's, he's saying, you are all driven out once. You have no right. You have no heritage or memorial in Jerusalem. You're not allowed to stay here. We, you were sent out once before, and I'm here to say you're going out again. <laughs> right? Now, this is the enemy already. Look, they had decided to arise and to build, but they hadn't begun yet. This is, they're in like the planning stages, and already the enemy is at work. And so it, they said, and he, it says, we will arise and build, okay? So it hasn't begun yet, and twice already the enemy is at work laughing at them in the planning stages when they're just talking about what they're going to do. The enemy is laughing at them and questioning them, what is this that you are doing? Now, chapter 3 is all about the work that they are doing, the families that they are placing. We're not going to read through all of that. But in chapter 3, they begin to engage in the work. In chapter 4, we see again the enemy coming against the work. In verse 1, But it so happened, when Sanballat heard that they were doing this, that we were rebuilding the wall, he was furious and indignant. Actually, it says very indignant. And he mocked the Jews. And he spoke before his brethren in the army of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish, stones that are burned? Man, this is so much the enemy. Your life seems like it's burned and in rubbles. And he says, look, you really think that this life of a mess you have could ever be resurrected? 
well, let's see, I know Jesus. You know Jesus? <laughs> He's getting them to doubt their ability. Now Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and said, Whatever they build, if even a fox, now we all have seen foxes, it's not like they're elephants. They're these little cute animals, right? If even a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. It's not like it's hay. This is a stone wall. And he's saying a fox is going to break it down. And so what is the enemy doing? He's getting them to doubt their ability. Keep on going to verse 6. Now, so when we built the wall... And the entire wall was joined together up to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. I love that. I, we serve it in a family here that has a mind to work in the kingdom, and I love that. They had a mind to work. We're in verse 6. Now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were beginning to be closed, that they became very angry. There's just so much anger and rage happening in the enemy over this work of God. When you begin to step into doing God's purposes for your life, whether it's in your job, in your family, in your church. It makes the enemy furious. You, sometimes we don't realize when we begin to do th what God has put in us to do, we underestimate how the enemy feels about that. And the truth is, is it makes him furious. He doesn't just sit by and let you just start to do whatever God has put inside of you to do. He doesn't. He's out to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And when you step into to your place of, that God has you doing the things that before you were born, he created you to do, it makes the enemy furious. And all of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. The, the enemy flourishes in confusion. Nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God, and because of the enemy, we set a watch against them day and night. You know, the New Testament says something about being vigilant in the day that we live in. That the time is drawing near, and so be alert and be awake. And that's what Nehemiah is doing. Because of the enemy, we set a watch against them night and day. And then Judah said, the strength of the laborers is failing. And there is so much rubbish that we are not able to build the wall. 
And so they're human like any of us. And there comes moments in the work of God where weariness can come. We are humans. It's a big job. And weariness can come in, even discouragement. They felt overwhelmed by all of this rubbish. And, and sometimes, even as I am driving through the community, I can be overwhelmed by the amount of people I know in these neighborhoods that don't know Jesus and say, Lord, the work is so big. And, and discouragement can come in that place. And that's the time to be on guard. Because that's the, the moment the enemy will try to sweep in when you're battling weariness and discouragement. And so in verse 11, so our adversaries said, they will neither know nor see anything till we come into their midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. So it was when the Jews who dwelt near them came that they told us 10 times. They wanted, I think they were getting the word of the Lord there, right? 10 times from whatever place you turn, they will be upon us. And so the Jewish people were like, everywhere we turn, the enemy is upon us. Anybody ever felt like that? It just feels like any way you go in your life, in any area of your life that you turn, it feels like you're just up against the enemy sometimes. Therefore, in verse 13, Nehemiah positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall at the openings, and I set the people according to their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles, leaders, and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome. Isn't that an interesting word he used? When the whole time the enemy is trying to awe them with the, his attack against them, Nehemiah says, hey, wait a minute. Don't be afraid of them. Let's, let's think about who we're going to be in awe of here. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. Man, this is why like, that, that word that Chris brought about the spirit of complacency, we can't make room for that because we are fighting. We are fighting for our brethren, one another. We are fighting for our sons and our daughters. We're fighting for our wives and our husbands and our houses. To stay engaged within it. And so it happened when our enemies heard that it was known to us, their plan, and that God brought their plot to nothing, that all of us returned to the wall everyone to his work. And so it was from that time on that half of my servants worked at construction while the other half held spears, shields, bows. They wore armor and the leaders were behind all of the house of Judah. Those who built on the wall and who carried burdens loaded themselves so that with one hand they worked at construction and with other hand, they held a weapon. They were on dual duty. They had a sword in one hand 
and a hammer in another, doing that which God had called them to do, while the whole time resist the enemy that he will flee. This isn't for the faint of heart, is it? Then I said to the, um, everyone of the builders had his sword, okay, girded at his side as he built, and the one who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And he said to the people, the work is so great and extensive, they were separated along the wall, and so they had to have the trumpeteer. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally there, and our God will fight for us. So they had erected a defense plan. So we labored in the work, and half of the men held the spears from daybreak until the stars appeared. At the same time, I said to the people, let each man and his servant stay at night in Jerusalem. Don't go to your homes. That they may be on guard by night and working party by day. So neither I nor my brethren, my servants, or the men of the guard who followed me took off our clothes, except that everyone took them off for washing. <laughs> Isn't that good to know? They even, in the midst of it, managed to stay clean. They, were, they, were, they had put their hand to this job. They were working hard, even as they worked in the power of the Almighty God. And so if we go over now in verse 5 and many of the other verses later, or chapters in Nehemiah later, it talks about a lot of stuff going on within themselves. Some of them were oppressing one another, and as a brethren, they shouldn't have been doing that. There's some things about the law that they were not walking in that they brought correction to. So in the midst of this, they're also dealing with some in-house stuff, right? And so we're not going to get into any of that. But in chapter 6, if you go over there, we get close to the wall being complete. In verse 1, now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall and that there were no breaks left in it, though at that time I had not hung the doors in the gates. So they are so close. It reminds me of when we're doing a project at home and you get the main stuff done and think, oh, I'll get to the other later. Like whenever I'm in my bathroom and I look up at the ceiling, I see the second coat of trim paint that I needed to do years ago. You know, there's always those little things that you don't finish because you can kind of live with it. <laughs> that was kind of the picture I got here. Well, we, we, it's all done. I've built the wall. Well, wait a minute, except for the doors. So he had not hung the doors, but at this point in verse 2, Sanballat and Geshem sends to him saying, hey, Nehemiah, come, let's get together and among the villages and, and you know, let's, let's talk. But it says, they thought to do me harm. And so he sees this, Nehemiah, and he acknowledges it. And he sends messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? Listen, distraction is huge with the enemy. If he can distract you from what God has called you to do, 
And we need to take on this attitude of Nehemiah. I'm doing this work. Why should I bother to give attention to the enemy? Sometimes we're so distracted by, oh, the enemy, the enemy, the enemy. Man, if we sometimes just ignore him, that would be more powerful than any constant battle you're doing against him. Because it's distracting you from what you should be doing, that which God has put inside of you. And so it says in verse 4, they sent this message to him not once, not twice, not three times, but four times. They tried to get him to come down and meet with them. And Sanballat sent his servant to me not four times, five times. And here, this time, it's an open letter. And in this letter, he brings accusations to him. It's reported among the nations. And and Geshem says that you and the Jews plan to rebel. Therefore, according to these rumors, you are rebuilding the wall that you may be their king. So now he's saying, I know you have ambition, Nehemiah. He's accusing him of ambition. And you have also appointed prophets to proclaim concerning you at Jerusalem, saying, there is a king in Judah. Now these matters will be reported to the king. So come, therefore, and let's talk about that. This is so interesting that he would try, he's, he's trying to accuse him of being, hiring a false prophet to declare his kingship. And he does this in verse 9, for this reason, they were trying to make us afraid, saying their hands will be weakened in the work, and it will not be done. They see that it's getting close, and they're still trying to keep the work from getting done. He's trying to weaken them and wear them down. Now, here's why that was interesting, because as we continue on, we see that They hire a false prophet. After accusing Nehemiah of it, they do the same. In verse 10, after Nehemiah prays for his hands to be strengthened in the face of the enemy, afterward I came to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was a secret informer. And he said, let us meet in the house of God within the temple and close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. Indeed, at night they will come to kill you. So in the face of this threat, Nehemiah, defile the temple and go hide in it. And here's Nehemiah's answer. Should such a man as I flee... And who is there such as I who would go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Then I perceived that God had not sent him at all, but that he had pronounced this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. For this reason he was hired, that I should be afraid. Do you see how often fear comes into what the enemy is trying to do? Make them afraid. 
And if he was afraid, he would act this way and sin so that they might have cause for an evil report that they might reproach me. Reproach me. And so now, entrapment. Now they're trying to bring accusation and catch him in a sin so that his testimony is destroyed. I think we all know how the enemy works even today in this area. And this is why the Bible talks about do not even engage in the appearance of sin. It's not enough to know I'm not sinning. I got to not even have the appearance of sinning. This is why you will never, women, have a meeting with my husband alone in this building. I will never have a meeting with a guy in this building alone. There are times that Darren will call me and say, if we're both meeting with somebody, hey, so-and-so's here, I'm outside, and he's on the phone with me until I get there. Why? Because not even the appearance that there can be no false accusation made. Because the enemy, he doesn't care about playing fair. You can be operating. Nehemiah showed great integrity. Even if I'm afraid, I'm not going to defile the temple and go hide in it. He had integrity. But the enemy could have easily, in the face of integrity, entrapped him and brought false accusation. This is how the enemy works. And knowing how he works is a key to acknowledging and seeing it when it happens in your life. And so we come finally to the completion of the wall. In chapter 6, verse 15, so the wall was finished on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days. And when it happened, and, and it happened when all our enemies heard of it, and all the nations around us saw these things, that they were very disheartened in their own eyes, for they perceived that this work was done by our God. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. In the end, after all of the striving to disenhearten the people of God, the enemies themselves were in that place. For God had done this work. The wall was made complete. Praise the Lord. He finishes what he begins. And then my favorite part of this account, go over to chapter 12, and we see the dedication of the wall. Now, in order to appreciate the dedication of the wall, you have to go back to the taunting and the mocking of the enemy. When he says, well, even a fox up on the top of that wall, if it goes up there, it will cause the wall to come down. And so Nehemiah engages in a little bit of a, ah, ah, I told you so, kind of a, you know, I mean, there, in all of us, there's this little bit of, you said this, let me show you now. And so in chapter 12, verse 27, now at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites in all of their places, the priests, to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, both with thanksgiving and singing, with cymbals and stringed instruments and harp. Okay, go over to verse 31. So I brought the leaders of Judah up on the wall. 
They didn't stand around the outside of the wall. They go up on the wall and appointed two, not just two Thanksgiving choirs. It specifies two large Thanksgiving choirs. One went to the right hand on the wall toward the refuse gate, and then on the other side went to the other, in verse 38, the other Thanksgiving choir went the opposite way. And I was behind them with half of the people on the one wall, and the others going the other way. And so, in the face of the taunting of the fox, they send out the large choirs and all the people traipsing around up on top of this wall. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And verse 43, also that day, they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard afar off. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. God had this work from the very beginning for them to complete. And just because God says, this is what I want you to do, does not mean the enemy will not try to make that not come to pass. And as much as God wants a work to be done through you, you have the choice of submitting to the enemy's works or withstanding it. God's purposes just don't automatically come to pass because he says so. This is where he partners with us. And we have to, as it says, resist the devil, right? We have our job in resisting. And so let's take just a really quick now. We've walked through the passage I want four, just four of the enemy's tactics to summarize what we just walked through. The first tactic is that he'd be, he caused them to try, he tried to cause them to doubt God's plan from the very beginning. What is this thing you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? It reminds me of another time when he tried to bring doubt in. With Adam and Eve, did God really say? He likes to get you to question what God really put inside of you to do. When you feel resistance, you can often begin to ask that, did God really want me to do this? If that's the question coming to you, I would probably say the source is not God. But Satan has a history of asking such questions. He wants you to doubt God's plan. The second tactic is to doubt your own ability to carry out the work. He began to belittle them and to mock them. What is this work you're doing? Will even a fox be able to go on top of it? He questions their ability. He questions, he causes them to say, ah, maybe this work is too big. Maybe it's beyond my skill. Oh, he'll play havoc with, especially if you already are, you don't have a lot of self-confidence in your abilities. Satan can wreak havoc with this one in your life, doubting your ability to carry out God's purposes. And the third tactic is fear in order to weaken you so that the work won't get done. 
Remember, he tried to meet with them to harm them, and it says he tried to weaken us so that he could harm us. And so if he can wear you down, weaken you, it's a moment he'll begin then to harm you. That's his third tactic. Fourth tactic was to attack the character. When he tried to get him to defile the temple, he hired the, tr- the false prophet. All four of these are fear-based. This is the realm that the enemy operates in is fear, intimidation. And so when we talk about now translate this into intimidation, now, you know, we don't have an enemy with guns and swords trying to come at you, but you have an enemy of your soul. And if he can overawe you and intimidate you for his purpose, he will do so to stop the work in your life. What this looks like with intimidation is that it will cause your gift to not be operational. You will not be able to operate in the gifts and skills that God has given you if you are intimidated. If you really, what it comes down to is a fear of man. Now, he has something to say about that in 2 Timothy, and we all know this verse, don't we? He's saying to Timothy, Therefore, I remind you, stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of hands. Timothy, you have a gift, and you need to stir it up. What is the thing that will come against his gift? The next verse. God has not given you a spirit of fear, but a power and love and of sound mind. Why does he give this verse after he tells Timothy to stir up the gift of God in him? Because intimidation of man, and remember, Timothy was younger, and so can you imagine the intimidation of of the, the more seasoned elderly people that he's trying to minister to? We lived that in Petersburg, our first church, as 20-year-old and and 22-year-old with an older congregation. Intimidation can get you to stop operating in your gift. Let me give you an example. When Now, I've always been involved in ministry. It was primarily to women in my younger years. And I had done a lot of teaching and a lot of speaking, I had never done a lot of teaching or speaking in the presence of my husband. And so there was a season in my life where we had some um, people with prophetic giftings come through, and I had three words given to me over the course of a couple of years from three different evangelists. They were all the exact same words. They all said, you need to step out of the shadows with, your, with ministry, you need to come out from the shadows and basically come up and walk with my husband. And I, I was like, I don't understand. I'm walking. I'm doing ministry. I'm doing ministry. It wasn't until my pastor asked me to preach in the congregation for the first time that I understood what that word was. And the last one that had given it to me, I said, you're the third one that has given me that word. And he just looked at me and he said, well, why aren't you doing something about it? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) 
And so in the moment when I was asked to preach and I realized I would be preaching for the first time with my husband sitting down there, whoa, suddenly I realized the intimidation I had in my life. I had never ministered in front of my husband, and I was intimidated. I was not intimidated of my pastor or any of the people. It was my husband. And I had to, in that moment of revelation, it changed everything for me ministry-wise to recognize how, in, what intimidation does because I did not want to preach. It was stealing my ability to preach. This happened a second time to me when I had to, for ordination level, in the Assemblies of God, there is the preaching um, moment when you have to get up and preach in a room with three of the presbyters. These would be the big-time people in the Illinois district. And you're going to get up in front of three or four people and preach a sermon to them. From acquiring my first level of credential, I had been dreading this moment. For years, I knew this moment was going to come. If I wanted to be ordained, I had to do this. And so who did I draw in my room but one of the best communicators that I know and a spiritual father for me, Gary Blanchard. Another excellent communicator and the leader of the Illinois Teen Challenge, Paul Heinzman. There were like two others. I can't remember, but these were the two that were intimidating to me. And so I had to get up, and I had chosen the blessed assurance, the coming of the return of Jesus. This felt like the easiest one to me. <laughs> and so I, I was shaking, man. I was shaking. And I knew I was waiting for my time. And, and you, you stop, it's not, it's, you know, even if they were here in a room with a bunch of people, it wouldn't be so bad. But when there's like three or four people in the room and you got to preach a sermon, it's a little odd. And so I step into the room and there comes this moment where the intimidation is so intense. And you have to understand, I... The authority figures, I'm not in general a people pleaser, but for the authorities in my life, I am. I want to please the people that are my authorities. It brings me joy to do it. And so I really wanted to please Gary Blanchard, right? He's a spiritual father for me. But he's also the best communicator I know in the state of Illinois. <laughs> and so in that moment when I stepped up behind the pulpit, I just said, Lord, I've just got to do this. I can feel intimidation all over me, and I know if I give in to the intimidation, the overawe even of the spiritual father that the enemy is trying to overawe me with, I know I'm going to flop in preaching this. It's going to make my gift not be able to work. And so in that moment, I had to make a choice. I'm not giving in to intimidation right now. I am intimidated, but I have to push that aside and say, the word of the Lord is the word of the Lord, and I'm preaching the word of the Lord. And so I did it <laughs> afterward. I was like, oh. These are, the, these are the moments where God has, God has gifts in each one of you. 
And he, the enemy wants to render them inactive. Some of you this year have stepped into new leadership positions. Some of you, even at work, have gotten some promotions, and you're stepping into new things that you are doing. Even in high school, Derek is starting to do clinicals at the hospital. That can be very intimidating, can't it? There are places wherever it is that you are overawed. And sometimes the overawe is not, I, I mean, there are people I'm kind of in awe of. It's not really bad if I am learning from them and I am gaining insight from them. If it is producing fear in me to operate in my gift, then it is intimidation. And intimidation will get you. So you, you look across the room and you see how easy it is for somebody else to, to operate in their gift. And it makes you think, Aja, who am I? I can't do that. These are the thoughts that will begin to go in. And it's rendering you inactive in your ability to do what God has put in you to do. We, you can have you can have a great worship leader like Ben Brown come in. And the worship team, in the face of this guy that's teaching worship at a campus, could struggle. This would be an opportunity where intimidation could come in. Wow, look at how gifted they are. I'm not that gifted. And so it can be difficult to rise up in your gift then. And it doesn't matter how seasoned you are. I'll never forget the moment when we had Pastor Phil Schneider here preaching for us, our district superintendent, and Darren was leading worship. It was probably one of the worst worship sessions he'd led in because he was intimidated with Pastor Phil being here. And so nobody is above this. But if you can identify intimidation in your life, and it usually will have to do with your gifting or things that God has called you to do, then you can see it for what it is and say, no, I refuse to let a spirit of fear govern me, for I have been made for power and for love. Intimidation will keep you from loving people. If you are intimidated by somebody, it'll be very hard to love that somebody. That's not God. God calls us to love all. We are made for power, for love, and a sound mind. Fear will destroy all of those. I love in the, I think it's the ESV that says, the spirit of God does not make us timid. So if you feel timidity, just know that's not coming from God. God doesn't make you timid. He gives you power, love, and a sound mind. And so to conclude, just to quickly, one other situation, I'm going to summarize. You know the story of Gideon. And Gideon was um, threshing the, the wheat in the wine press because the enemy kept coming into Israel and stealing all of their crops, all of their food, they were starving, so he's hiding out with the wheat to try to guard it. And the angel of the Lord comes to Gideon and says, Greetings, O mighty man of valor. And he's looking around like, who are you talking to? Uh, there's only me in this place. I think you're in the wrong wine press. 
You need to go to my neighbor down the road. That's where the mighty man of valor is. The angel's like, I, no, Gideon, oh, mighty man of valor, I'm talking to you. And what is God wanting Gideon to do? He's wanting to lead this army against the enemy. And Gideon begins to offer up his excuses. Look, I am of the weakest clan, the weakest family, and I'm the weakest one of them all. I'm the bottom of the barrel. You talk about intimidation, and now, God, you think I should be leading the army <laughs> against the enemy? Intimidation. To overcome the intimidation means we begin to fear the word of the Lord in our life over the word of man, what man thinks about us. We sang it this morning, I don't really care what anybody thinks about me. Now, in context, I do care what you think about me because I love you. However, when it comes to worshiping Jesus, I don't care what you think about me, right? The intimidation of man will keep you in the place of saying, I'm the weakest of the weak. I can't operate in what you're asking me to operate, God. I can't lead an army. I'm the lowest of the low. Intimidation. I'm intimidated. I have fear. I, I doubt my gifting and my ability. And yet there comes the moment when Gideon builds an altar to the Lord because he has a God encounter. And in the God encounter, God transforms Gideon, and he begins to lead the army in such a way that they actually reduce the size of the army so that he's going out with even less men, and he overtakes the enemy, and later it says for 40 years the land was in peace while under the rule of Gideon. This is God looking at you saying, Deborah, O oh mighty woman of valor. Cole, O oh mighty man of valor. Right? He looks at you and he says this. And you have to believe the word of the Lord over the word of the enemy who would say, you can't do anything. Who are you that you think you can do that? Intimidation. And intimidation will come at the hand of man. It will come at the hand of co-workers but you got to know who you are in God. And you got to be more fearful of God and not fulfilling his word over your life than you are of man. And so I want to bring this back around to where we started with Joshua. And the very next thing that Moses says to Joshua, and he says it in sight of all of Israel, is be strong and of good courage. For you must go with this people to the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall cause them to inherit the land. I don't know what it is God has put in your heart to do, but I know he's put something there. And what he would say to you is be strong. Be of good courage, for you have this thing to do, and it's not just for you. It says, you shall cause them to inherit it, 
It affects your family, your children, your coworkers. You fulfilling God's plan is not just about you. It's about everybody that you touch. So be strong and of good courage. The things he calls you to are probably bigger than what you think you can do. But that's okay because he's given you strength and he's given you courage. He's given you power. He's given you love and he's given you a sound mind. So stir up, fan into flame the gifts that are in you and activate them and say no to the enemy's wiles and the enemy's tactics to steal, kill, and destroy that work. Amen? And so will you stand with me this morning?